Next, on Afterwards, Paul Tuff reports on the challenges and costs of a college education. He's interviewed by Sarah Goldrick Robb, author and founding director of the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Well, Paul, you've written a terribly insightful and even sometimes surprising read, and I'm really grateful and happy to be talking about this book with you. Um, so one of the things I really like about the book is that you really spent time with students and their families, and we know that today's college students are so different from the students who used to attend college um, that my team has taken to calling them real college students. I'm, I'm really curious about your take on students today based on your reporting. Well, I think you're right. I think the, the demographics of students today are different. The, the age of students is different. Um, I mostly focused on students who uh, were right out of high school. Mm-hmm. So my, the experience that I wanted to focus on was, was what is that transition out of high school and into the workforce. So mm-hmm. that definitely doesn't capture all of the college population. Um, but I wanted to understand how the pathways diverged after high school for different students. Uh, and most of the ways that I found they diverged were by family income, that mm-hmm. uh, students who had a lot of family income were going down much more traditional paths. Students without uh, a lot of family income had many more obstacles in their path. Mm-hmm. Um, can you start by telling us then as we get into those different issues a little about your own path coming out of high school? Yes, so I had a bit of a rocky uh, post-high <laughs> school period. So I started right after high school. I grew, uh, grew up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and after finishing high school in Toronto, I came to Columbia University, mm-hmm. um, survived for one semester, uh, <laughs> and then dropped out and uh, bicycled around the southern United States for a few months, uh, ended up uh, half a year later at um, McGill University in mm. Montreal, Stayed there for three semesters and then dropped out again uh, and went and did an internship at Harper's Magazine and started my journalism career. And I thought I might, when I left and did that, I thought I might go back to college, but uh, ended up, uh, I was never a big fan of college, the college experience, and I felt like what I was getting out of journalism was what I had been looking for in college. It was Mm -hmm. just this exciting intellectual conversation, and so Mm -hmm. I tried to figure out if I could stay, and I did I think we can tell a bit in this book that it's not like you just had the traditional path where, you know, everything just came up rosy and you're wondering why it isn't happening for other folks. Um, Part of the reason for that is that you went to a lot of different places and you really do talk about a wide variety of students. They may all be right out of high school, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not all cut from the same cloth. How did you decide as you embarked on this project, you know, you write that you went to a broad spectrum of colleges. How did you decide where to go? Um, Well, I mean... I looked all over. So I went to 21 <laughs> different states in my reporting. Wow. I talked to hundreds of students. Okay. Um, and, and so part of that was just trying to get a, get the lay of the land mm-hmm. and just sort of understand and hear from a lot of different students. And I felt like that would inform me, just hearing mm-hmm. from a lot of different places. Um, but at the same time, I was looking for a number of students who I wanted to follow in depth mm-hmm. over time. Uh, and eventually I found a few characters that I really connected with, one, uh, a couple in North Carolina, um, one in New York, um, a few in D.C., uh, and together they, I wouldn't claim that they're representatives, sure. but they felt like um, together that I could tell a portrait of what it was like for a, a broader number of students. So, but were you intentionally trying to make sure that, for example, that you were, you know, spending some time at what you refer to as the top 270 mm-hmm. versus, you know, the other 
4,000 plus colleges and universities in the U.S.? Yes, I mean one of the one of the strange things about the way that I that I ended up at universities was that I started with a lot of students in high school. Uh-huh. Um, so okay. some of the students I met were in high school, and and there were a few, including two of the main characters in mm-hmm. the book, who were super high achieving, low income students. So. Mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised that they ended yeah. up at, uh, at highly selective institutions, but I would have been interested in their path no matter where they ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took me to, to those institutions. Um, but then I also ended up at the University of Texas um, mm-hmm. and a few other institutions in in Austin. Uh, and that was, that was through sort of happenstance, but UT turned out to be a, an institution that really interested me and continued mm-hmm. to interest me, so I just kept coming back there over the course of many years. It's a great public school. So. It was. Um, so let's dig into a few of the students. I mean, some of them are just, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will find Shannon in particular to be both kind of a heartbreaker and a bit of a fairy tale in certain regards. How did you, how did you meet her? Um, so... Shannon, I met through this program called uh, LIDA, Leadership Enterprise for a Diverse America, which is a um, remarkable scholarship program that selects 100 uh, low-income students in junior year from across the country, uh, all super high-achieving mm-hmm. academically, uh, and then brings them together uh, the summer after junior year on the Princeton campus for a seven-year, seven-week uh, summer mm-hmm. program um, that's kind of like high-achieving college boot camp. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and these students, most of whom, most, most of them are either um, at sort of a low-income school where they are among the, a few super high-achieving students, mm-hmm. or they are uh, sometimes one of the few students of color in a, in a sort of high at academic track at a more uh, diverse high school. Um, but, it, but in either cases, they often don't have a lot of uh, students like them where mm-hmm. they are. And then they get to this Lita Summer Institute mm-hmm. and suddenly they're surrounded by um, young people just like them and they love it. And so it was at that summer program that I met Shannon. So she was she's from the South Bronx, but I met her on the Princeton campus. And she becomes, you know, the opening character of the book. And I, I know from having had to choose among students, you know, who you've gotten to know really well that that decision is a big decision. It's a it's a writing decision, it's a it's a content decision, right? What is it about her story that made you think, okay, they're going to start wading their way into this, and this person that I want them to meet, it's Shannon? Well, I have to just confess as a writer that I wrote two completely different drafts of the first chapter that did not have Shannon in them. Okay. So now when I look at the first chapter, it's like, of course, Shannon's the perfect character (laughs) for the beginning, but I... It took me like four months of yep. failure to realize that, um, so I can't claim that it was obvious to me right away. But uh, but I feel like there were two reasons that I think that, that Shannon ends up making sense as the initial character, uh, or as the first character that you meet. One is that, that I happened to be with her on this uh, really momentous day in mm-hmm. her college uh, experience where mm-hmm. she was finding out uh, from certain institutions whether she was in or out, um, and that felt like a, a, a great stroke of luck um, uh, journalistically. Um, But the other was that I feel like she, more than any other student who I met, was at the beginning at least a real true believer in the idea of higher education Mm -hmm. as a a force of social mobility Mm -hmm. and the idea that that selective college admissions was a real meritocracy where her hard work would um, earn her uh, real consideration. And so 
that felt that felt sort of um, conceptually like the right place to start because mm-hmm. it let uh, you know a lot of what I do in the book is question those two assumptions and mm-hmm. she went on to question both of those assumptions but at that moment she was she was at this sort of um, at this crisis point of mm-hmm. trying to figure out whether she still believed those two things or not. Yeah. Do you think she's unusual in in you know approaching college admissions with the general belief that you know it really is about your talent and hard work? I think she is. I mean, I think, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, she's unusual in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we as a nation still have um, some high ideals about how higher education and admissions works, but maybe it's more so among young people. I do mm-hmm. feel like there's a certain um, cynicism. I mm-hmm. think a lot of us do, but but including young people, that, that they feel like it's a game. And so mm-hmm. they think of it as like, let, let me figure out the rules and see if I can figure out how to play it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was really struck by was that you, ha- we intru- you introduced us to another character, Ned, who in some sense teaches people to be cynical, teaches people how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And, and that would suggest, and you should tell us in a moment how he does that, but that would suggest that even among those who are raised relatively wealthy... They need to be disabused of the idea that this is real, right? That there yeah, is some point. real, right? That there is some reason to believe, you know, the SAT is really measuring your intelligence, right? And those college admissions officers are actually making a judgment about you as a human. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think, so So Ned Johnson is um, an SAT tutor yeah. in uh, Washington, D.C., who runs his own company called yeah. Prep Matters, um, charges $400 an hour for his tutoring services, so has very affluent students, mm-hmm. but bills more hours than anybody else at his company. Uh, so he's, he's very good and very successful at what he does. Um, and, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question that you're posing. And I think that the affluent students who come to him do already have a sense of, of higher education admissions as a game, uh-huh. um, that they've already, you know, been thinking about their extracurricular activities since middle school and their sports and going on college tours. And I think they they are wise to that side of it. But but I think what he picks up on is that they still think of the test of the mm-hmm. SAT and the ACT as a measure of their worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because in, in, in their communities and also in, in college admissions, it is given so much weight. Uh, and so they often walk into his office believing that this number on the SAT or the ACT is not only going to determine so much about their future, it's also going to determine who they are and sort of what their own sense of self-worth is, what their value to their family is, what their value in their school is. Um, And it's that pressure that he feels actually um, paradoxically makes them do worse. You write that, you know, when he helps someone do better by, say, 100 points, you know, one of the things that was fascinating to me is you quantify it in terms of the number of people they just pulled ahead in front of, right? So, So now all these Americans are behind you and you're racing ahead, and this could actually change your life. I, I appreciated the way in which you tried to wrestle with whether or not, in fact, it would actually really change your life, though. Yeah. Like, you, you do, you actually wrestle with the researchers a bit. Um, tell me about the effort to, like, make heads or tails of what we actually know, about whether the claim that going to a more selective college because you had higher scores actually pays off. Yeah, so there's this, there, uh, among economists, there is this uh, ongoing debate about whether going to a more selective institution makes a difference. Um, And there's this paper from a couple of decades ago by these uh, researchers, Dale and Kruger, that says Mm -hmm. for affluent students, actually doesn't matter that much. Uh, And that, I think, so, I mean, the the strange thing about this debate is that I think it's both sort of an actual, like, 
you know, data debate that mm-hmm. economists understand in ways that I don't about who's using what numbers correctly. But it also is this sort of like um, almost religious debate mm-hmm. among uh, among Americans in general, and especially I think parents who, despite their their competitiveness, I think don't want to believe that it matters as much as it does. And I think some parents don't want to believe it because they fear their kids aren't going to get into those Mm -hmm. most selective schools and they care about their kids. I think others of us want to believe it doesn't matter so much because we want to believe that this advantage that, say, Ned's students are getting and being able to leapfrog over Mm -hmm. all of these other students um, is is not really something that matters, that is just Mm -hmm. sort of a, a, a frivolous luxury good. Um, and so the competing study uh, by uh, Carolyn Hawksby that, that takes on um, uh, the Dale and Kruger paper says that it really does matter, that, that mm-hmm. these mo- more selective institutions uh, increase your lifetime earnings by millions of dollars more than less selective institutions, and, th- and that also these more selective institutions spend much more money mm-hmm. per student than the less selective institutions do. Um, I, and so where I sort of come down on this is that I think it does, I think... For any individual student, I still think um, it, it is not a life and death decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that you know what we often tell our students that there's a right school for you uh, is still true. But I do think that the fact that these different institutions are having, on average, such different effects on, on the earnings of their graduates really does matter, especially given the fact that the student bodies at those different institutions uh, are demographically so different. Yeah, I found the discussion so interesting because the the part that gets so much attention is what the effect of the test scores and the sort of getting in will be, and less attention spent on the massive differences in what people, what the schools can spend, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, part of this could be school spending matters, and the fact that we have such gross disparities in what schools can spend based on what kind of money they have, who yeah. has an endowment, who doesn't, gets and, so little of the attention. Right, and those disparities have only grown. Right. So um, I think it was Carolyn Hawksby, but mm-hmm. I can't remember which researcher who showed that, yeah, not that long ago, the difference between the, the sort of most selective institutions and the least selective institutions, how much they were spending was like 4000 to 18000 yeah. per student per year, and now it's like 4000 to 150000 um, And so in, as in so many ways in... in uh, American society that the, those most affluent uh, institutions and individuals have have pulled away from mm-hmm. everyone else and become more sort of gated communities of mm-hmm. higher education. And that this has happened because of intense decisions that are not publicly debated, right? As a matter of public right. policy, for example, right, the states, and you review some of this, the states have defunded public higher ed, mm-hmm. while the wealthier institutions have been able to shield themselves, mm-hmm. right, from those challenges with their endowment the you know the open access publics including the community colleges which don't get as much attention i think in this discussion right true um the century foundation claims they don't even have adequate support to educate a student on a per student basis yeah i mean i think it's so you're right that it is sort of individual decisions what is strange about this system because we have both a combination of public and private decision yeah. is that some of the decisions are being made by politicians and right. thus by us right. um you know we've we've cut our per student funding on public higher education you may know uh, more precise numbers than me, but the number that I see is by 16% uh-huh. per student since 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's having a huge and often devastating effect on public higher education, while at the same time, a, a small number of super affluent individuals are donating hundreds of millions of dollars 
to a very small number of institutions of higher education. Um, and so those individual decisions uh, by those wealthy individuals are making a huge difference in the same Yeah. Way. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's stark, to say the least. One of the people who you talk about is Kiki. And Kiki goes to one of those schools. It's actually featured in the Century Foundation's report, Princeton. Um, the Century Foundation features it to explain that Princeton receives more taxpayer support on a per-student basis than a New Jersey community college does which is probably the reverse of what most people would imagine. Right. Um, and the results are, are fairly intense. I mean, this, you know, as a nonprofit, Princeton doesn't even have to pay taxes on its land, um, although it, it has voluntarily done so. Um, but, but most people would think that Kiki, being at Princeton and not being at a New Jersey community college, would find life extremely easy, right? And, and you don't find that. Um, talk to me about sort of what you did see happening for her. Yeah, Kiki's, I mean, Kiki's relationship with Princeton was really complicated, and, and uh, I, I did my best to try to, try to understand mm-hmm. it and capture it. Um, I mostly, it was her freshman year that I mostly spent um, uh, talking to her and spending time with her on campus. And uh, so she's a low-income African-American student who had a pretty chaotic uh, upbringing, uh, but spent the last three years of her uh, K-12 education of high school mm-hmm. at a, a Affluent public institution in in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina, got a. She she was a fantastic student all through school, but especially there, got this sort of preparation for the kind of academic rigor of a place like Princeton. And so, when she got to Princeton, um, academically, she did great almost from the very start. I think there was her first paper; she got a C, and then she got nothing but A's afterwards. So, the kind of um, idea I think a lot of us have in our heads that that. Young student without who comes without a lot of money to a place like that can can struggle academically. Definitely not true for her, but she did. She was struck even even having had lots of experiences in her life up to that point of being a low income person among uh, high income people, being a uh, African American person among lots of white people. Mm-hmm. She was still struck by how sort of culturally and socially weird Princeton mm-hmm. was for her. How mm-hmm. concentrated that the affluence and privilege was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I th- one of the things that struck her was even among the African-American students who were the ones she was drawn to and where she tended to find her community, um, she did feel more of a, a sort of kinship and connection with them, but their backgrounds were often very different than hers. Mm-hmm. They were more likely to have gone to, much more likely to have gone to private school, to be from affluent families, often uh, the children of immigrants where she was from mm-hmm. generational poverty in the United States. Um, so I think all that was, was uh, con- confusing to her, often made mm-hmm. her feel like she didn't belong, made her anxious. At the same time, I feel like she's she's an an, an interesting uh, case because I feel like she, she at the same time she somehow felt when she got to Princeton mm-hmm. like this is where I was meant to be my whole life, right? Mm-hmm. Like like academically, intellectually, being in, I mean she she loved philosophy. She was in uh, mm-hmm. high level philosophy classes. Like this is what I was meant to be doing. So so I think that was part of why her freshman year was so complicated for her. Mm-hmm. That on the one hand she had arrived at the place that she had been looking for her whole life. On the other, it was difficult for her to truly feel at home and yeah. like a, like she belonged there. I, I appreciated so many different parts of that, including that you did dissect that black is not black is not black, right? And and that she was what Tressie McMillan Cottom calls a black black, right? And in the, in, in in what that means, especially around her family, could be very intense. So I think a lot of people probably assumed that for her being as low income as she was, she was totally taken care of financially. Mm-hmm. And I noted that you said something that very few of us have actually said out loud about what's happening in higher ed, which is that she wasn't just trying to finance herself while she was in college. She was also sending money 
home to her family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what you saw there, because that issue is so silenced. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's not allowed. You're supposed to have an expected family contribution. It's not that the family's supposed to expect your contribution. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that was true of, of Kiki. Her family moved with her to New Jersey yeah. and was about an hour mm -hmm. away. Um, and her... So she suddenly had... had enough money for the mm -hmm. first time in her life when she became a Princeton freshman. She had gotten two, like, full tuition scholarships mm -hmm. in addition to great aid from Princeton. So, um, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't rolling in money, but mm -hmm. she, 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 like, could survive. She could go out and get a cheeseburger when she wanted to. Um, and, uh, and her family, not far away, was still struggling uh, financially, um, intensely so. And so she felt pressure both within herself and from her family to send some of her aid to them, and she mm -hmm. did a few times. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I mean, I, I, so I did, you're right, I did report on that. I, I feel like it is a subject that is, um, I feel like those of us who are not not from that situation, um, it can often be really judgmental about mm -hmm. that, um, mm -hmm. like judgmental towards her family, mm -hmm. and feel like that, you know, that, what a terrible thing her mom would do to, to uh, expect that money from her. And, and so, I, I mean, I absolutely understand Kiki's point of view and her mom's point of view. Um, so I mentioned it, but I, but I, felt, yeah. I felt a little uncomfortable dwelling on it too much because I do think that there are ways that the sort of people who would be reading my book, I worry that they would be more judgmental than certainly Kiki was. Now, I very much understand that. It was one of the hardest things for me to write about. It's just that it feels like it's one of the things that weighs on her for sure. while she's there. And you always have to kind of wonder, wouldn't there have been a way to help them perhaps or to take it off her mind? You know, I don't know. Yeah. It, it seems like um, the, another college that she mentioned. No, I don't know. It's called Arupe. Arupe. Is that yeah. right? It seems like so. Arupe, you said, was doing a quote more impressive job of keeping its students enrolled and on track for success than any other institution you visited. And it seems like it's the kind of place where they would know more, like that that mm -hmm. was right happening with their students. They take this social psychological approach to education. Um, and they recognize students' basic needs. Mm -hmm. I was really struck that you noted that they provide every student with breakfast and lunch every day. Mm -hmm. And this at a time when, for those students, probably close to one in two has been food insecure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's kind of amazing. And they're employing social workers, mm -hmm. which is part of a culture of caring. Um, what do you think it is about this place that makes them attend to a student's basic needs mm -hmm. and see the whole person? And did did Kiki see any of that at Princeton? Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, let me yeah. talk about Arupe first. Sure. But then, uh, that's an, it's I hadn't thought about Kiki through that lens, but that's a great question. Um, so Arupe College is a two-year institution in Chicago, downtown Chicago, that's associated with Loyola University, which is a selective four-year Catholic private institution uh, that mostly enrolls pretty high-scoring, high-income, uh, mostly white students. Um, Arupe's mission is very different. It mostly enrolls uh, black and Latino Chicago Public School graduates, mm -hmm. almost entirely low income, um, and uh, mostly not very high scoring on the ACT. And so this is a population in Chicago and elsewhere that has very, uh, traditionally very low um, college outcomes who don't graduate from two-year colleges uh, 
at, at anything, any, any impressive rates at all. Um, and so when I say that, you know, I thought they were doing a more impressive job than, in, than any other institution, um, it's not that their graduation, their graduation rate is sky high. It's not mm-hmm. as high as, say, Princeton's. Um, but they were working with the student population for whom there just were no other good options, mm-hmm. and they were graduating a significant number of them um, on time in two years. And so, yes, uh, the, the approach that they took was the, the uh, dean of students, Father mm-hmm. uh, Katsuras, uh, a Jesuit priest uh, described it as a very intrusive model, mm-hmm. and that is not a term you hear very often yeah. from uh, yeah. from higher education uh, folks. Um, you know, the, a lot of our, our the basic concept of college is like we're going to stand back and let these teenagers mm-hmm. figure it out for themselves. Uh, and you know, there are some things to be said for that for that idea. But when you have students like like the ones who are enrolling in Rupe, like a hands off model means they are going to uh, struggle and often mm-hmm. drop out. Mm-hmm. And so Father Katsouros's notion is that there is just so much going on in the lives of these students, not only academically but socially, economically, financially. Most of them are working jobs. They have uh, family mm-hmm. trouble. They have food insecurity. Um, that he needs to be um, uh, to think about all of those different points. As to why he does it, so I mean, I think I think it goes to the Jesuit model. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's 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 a religious uh, duty mm-hmm. for him, um, which perhaps means it's a little bit difficult to replicate uh, mm-hmm. in in higher education as a whole. Um, but I but I actually think it's not. I mean, I think that's what inspires him and when where he gets his uh, concept of what a college should be and can be from. But I don't think it's a uh, necessary part. I do, I do think that that kind of intrusive culture, that kind of really just caring culture, yes. uh, could exist at a secular institution as well. Yeah, it does. And it, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it in the panhandle of Texas at Amarillo mm-hmm. College, which is not a Jesuit institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it so strikes me that, you know, again, you're right, the language was intrusive. It's not as though the students at Princeton, though, don't have people who are leaning into their lives. Mm-hmm. It's their parents mm-hmm. and the people their parents hire, right, mm-hmm. who, who helicopter over them. Um, but when the school does it, well, they might say it's in local parenthesis. The parents are involved. They don't know how to be. They don't have the resources to be involved the way the Princeton parents are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wonder, though, about the – does it change their ability to get the education, Ch- right? Ch- change the students' ability? The students' ability, right? I mean, you said, you know, Kiki wants so badly. I mean, mm-hmm. she's she's there. She could, she's got the talent. If someone was able to lean in more, mm-hmm. I guess be intrusive or mm-hmm. care, right, do you think she would have gotten even more from it? And, I mean, you know, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, I mean, Princeton... Has like spends a lot more money on student support <laughs> services than Arupe does. I mean, they have just this army of of you know counselors and advisors yeah. and mentors and therapists and like you can get every kind of help you need when you are a Princeton student. And and you know Kiki, I think was aware of that, but I think there is, but it is, but it's not intrusive in the same mm-hmm. way, or not. I don't know, maybe not caring in the mm-hmm. same way, or at least that's the way that Kiki um, perceived it, that she mm-hmm. she perceived like, okay, it's there, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for it, and uh, it can be there if I need it. But mm-hmm. she did not, I think, have that same feeling that an Arupe student yeah. did, of that, that someone is looking out for me, right. um, that someone really cares about me. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think on an emotional level, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. There's another writer right now who's got a book out, I think you, you talk about him, Anthony Jack, Tony mm-hmm. Jack, and, you know, he lived this as well, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. this going off to this elite school where they say they care and they give you this 
low price, but then you, you kind of come to understand what is and isn't in the domain of, mm-hmm. of what you've been given. Um, you know, when, at what point did you discover his work on this journey? I was curious if that sort of played a role in your thinking. It did, yeah. He was really influential on my thinking. He's a, a sociologist at Harvard. Uh, his book is The Privileged Poor. And, and I met him... I think three years ago, he had been featured in an article in the New York Times, uh, and I went to the, I think, first, maybe the second um, uh, conference of this group called Mm -hmm. uh, the First Generation IV Movement, uh, and it was at Harvard, and so I, uh, he was both speaking at that conference, um, and I interviewed him at the same time and got to know him a little bit, and so, um, yeah, so when I was writing about Kiki, that the chapter in which I write about her, you know, a, a, the, the sort of main narrative thrust is her and her experience. But mm-hmm. Tony Jack's research just gave me a kind of superstructure um, to yeah. understand the experience of other first-generation students in highly selective institutions. Yeah, I think it's just so powerful to have somebody who's lived it and now is is studying it, right, mm-hmm. and, and all of this. And I really did appreciate the way in which you danced between his need to keep the institution uh, name quiet and, and your need to state it. <laughs> um, you, you, you don't pull any punches in this book. I mean, you, you, you do kind of go for it in terms of a number of, uh, of arguments that people make. And one of the ones that's so you know, rampant right now is this idea that, well, we know that college isn't for everyone, and we really know it's going to be okay for those who don't go because welders. So I thought we should talk a little bit about welders and this idea that, you know, working with your hands pays off as an effective argument that we really shouldn't uh, worry so much about opening access to college. Well, you know, what did you learn as you tried to dig into that that claim? Yeah, so there, I feel like the, the the complication of the welding argument is that I think there are there are sort of two arguments going on at the same time. One is a genuine sort of labor economics argument, um, in which it's a you know somewhat complicated story, and the other is a very partisan. Uh, political argument. Mm-hmm. And those two have overlapped, especially I think in conservative politics and in the conservative media, in a way that makes it really difficult to disentangle. And, the, and I think that in a way that makes it difficult for people to, for a lot of people to sort of judge. Mm-hmm. Um, because all these questions of sort of identity and respect have been tied up in how we just make, you know, simple economic um, analyses of, mm-hmm. of what kind of professions can earn what kind of money. So the reality of uh, welding, there's two things that I found in, in, in writing about welding. One is that you need some kind of post-secondary training in order to become a welder. And most welders go to community college and get a two-year associate's degree. There are a very few apprenticeships that you can do uh, often after um, an AA degree. There are some welders who just do shop class in high school, though most of them find that's not enough training. And there are some for-profit and other technical colleges Mm -hmm. that uh, offer shorter courses of study, often uh, at really high prices. Um, So you need some kind of college. So it being an alternative to college, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, And then there was a lot of rhetoric in the years that I was doing this reporting Mm -hmm. about uh, welders who were making a ton of money, um, and there were figures of $150,000 a year, $200,000 a year, $350,000 a year for welders, and there are some who make sure. that much money, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, anecdotally, uh, and, and in reality, it is mm-hmm. possible. 
But most other professions, when they're judging the value of their profession or the, the, the opportunities available to somebody, don't talk about the highest earners. No one says, mm-hmm. like, you should be a writer because J.K. Rowling is making, you know, this many <laughs> tens of millions of dollars, so you could do the same thing. No one believes that that's <laughs> going to be true, right? But with welding, we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to just keep hitting the anecdotes of those super high earners. And the reality, when you look at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is that the median uh, wage for experienced welders is $41,000 a year, and the wage at the 90th percentile is $63,000 a year. So 90% of welders make less than $63,000 a year, which is about the median income uh, for households in the United States. So 90% of welders make less less than the median uh, family income, which is fine. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a good job. It's stable in some ways. Mm-hmm. It generally pays more than the minimum wage. Um, you know, if you, if you go to a community college that's well supported by the public and you mm-hmm. can get an associate's degree without a lot of debt and a lot of expense, it's a great pathway mm-hmm. if, if that's the work that you want to do. But we have surrounded welding with all of these political arguments, often filled with exaggerations, that make it really difficult for actual young people trying to get degrees uh, and trying to go into welding to make sensible decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, We've freighted those decisions with all these this sort of talk of politics and identity Mm -hmm. um, so that it's difficult for them to do what they need to do and what they need us to help them do, Mm -hmm. uh, which is make good decisions about how they can get to a a middle-class life. Yeah, I'm I'm struck as you walk through sort of the, the politicians and their talk and all of this, they've they actually managed to disappear the role that community colleges play, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they, 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 they say you can be a welder without college and then ignore the community college. On the other hand, if you ask them what they're for, they're for the community college. Do you have any thoughts on the dynamic around why it is we don't understand or seem to publicly understand the community college? Yeah, I think I, I, I feel like you, you, you know more about this question than I do, uh, so I'd be interested in your insights. But my sense is that we, there's something about that word, community yeah. college, that we have given a lot of negative connotations to. And, and so, in fact, a lot of people, when they're talking about where, where students learn mm-hmm. welding, they talk about technical college mm-hmm. or junior college, which generally means community college. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think community college has this, has this image of being something um, unpalatable or mm-hmm. unappealing. And, mm-hmm. and, in fact, like community college is this beautiful American idea mm-hmm. of, of uh, a publicly supported institution in your mm-hmm. in your community that can do one of two things. And the ones that I visited were doing these things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. One is provide um, high-quality job training in, mm-hmm. in a very specific vocation, whether that's uh, nursing or being an EMT mm-hmm. or being an IT specialist or being um, a welder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is providing um, a good foundation for in two years at low expense for a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. Both of those are things that uh, community colleges at their best can and can do and do on a regular basis. But we, because of the way of everything else that we've been talking about, have saddled those institutions both with um, the job of uh, taking care of students who have not been given other opportunities and supports and of doing it with very, very uh, little resources because we've cut their budgets by such a yeah. stark amount. I, I recall in the book you, you did run into, it wasn't one of your young people just out of high school who, who intersects with community college, but 
the community college was playing a bit of a role in his life and, and you know, allowing him to kind of move in and out. I, mm -hmm. You know, how, how did, I guess, you, by following the students, you found your way to their siblings? Is that mm -hmm. essentially, can you tell us a little about what you saw there? You, you mean the the student who was studying welding at yeah. community college? Yeah. yeah. So this was a young man named Ori in um, uh, a community in western North Carolina. Yeah. And yeah, so he in, in this one chapter, I follow these three different students who are at different, um, having different sort of intersections with two-year institutions, mm -hmm. uh, not all of which, I guess, are strictly speaking community colleges. Um, but they were all, uh, none of them loved school. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them were particularly dying to be in a classroom, but all <laughs> of them found that getting out of high school without any kind of extra credential meant that they were uh, trapped in a certain type of low-wage mm -hmm. work, whether uh, a very unstable work, whether that was um, uh, service, work, service work, food service work, um, uh, technology work, or, or manual labor, uh, working in factories. And for all of them, they just felt like they wanted another alternative. And so that took them to a few different institutions. And Ori, this young man in Western North Carolina, ended up at his local community college studying welding. Um, and in some ways, it was the perfect place for him. He had never been a, a school person and wasn't dying to go to college. And there was a lot about this institution that he really loved, and he was mm -hmm. learning a lot about welding. Um, but financially, it was so difficult for mm -hmm. him to make ends meet, to survive at college, to find the support that he needed, to just to get through the courses that he needed because mm -hmm. of budget cuts to that institution, um, that he is still trying to make his way to that degree. It's really something. And you, you swirled around yourself, as we heard in your story, so I imagine you kind of, you know, were able to understand this a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to think a little with you about... Um, Moving a little towards the, some of the solutions, mm -hmm. right? And 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 especially, you know, you talk a lot about uh, the inequality and how unhappy people are with it. Um, you write that some people think that when they're thinking about the problems in higher ed, um, they think that the problems lie not with universities or the higher education system at large, but with the students mm -hmm. who are simply uninformed and misguided mm -hmm. about their, you know, where their promising opportunities lay. And and you can certainly see that in those who are saying things like, well, let's just give them a good wage data, mm -hmm. right? Let's just show them those those numbers on what you can earn and, and you know, and let's send them more material. Um, what did you learn about the, the validity of that of that hypothesis? I mean, I think it's it's like very confusing being a 17 or 18 year old at, uh, at the best of times with the best of resources. Uh, and students who are in communities where uh, there's not a long history of college going, where there's not a lot of resources, uh, where there's not a lot of family resources. Um, when I would visit their, the, these schools in senior year and just talk to a group of students uh, about their college plans, what, I did that in, in, um, in Harlem, I did that in like rural Pennsylvania, I did that in rural Texas, there was just this, uh, you know, they were very confused about what the right option should be, and they felt this sort of responsibility when I would say, so what are you going to do, as every adult in their life was saying, to come up with some answer. I'm going to go mm -hmm. to this place to do this thing. But without, but it felt like they were just sort of grasping at something they'd heard of. And mm -hmm. it really struck me how, what a bad job we are doing, um, all of us, I think, uh, of providing them with, with useful information and, and and support to make those decisions in a sensible way. I mean, and part, so part of it is just good advice mm -hmm. uh, and good counsel and good sort of emotional support. Part of it is just that the options are often not that great. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think for some of those counselors, like trying to figure out the right sort of pathway mm -hmm. 
is difficult. And for, so for, for those three students that I mentioned, Ori and Taslim and Alicia, um, you know, it was partly just that it was hard for them to, to, to decide on a path or to find a good path. It's partly that there are not great paths for them. Mm-hmm. So some folks have tried, though, to say, well, if they need information and advice, we're experts, and we can send them information and advice, right? And and maybe this is cheap. I mean, you know, you talk about the idea that maybe there's a $6 solution here. Mm-hmm. Um, that really, that idea has really seized higher ed and really captured the public imagination, the idea that we can nudge people and we can, you know, send them info and we don't have to uh, put more counselors into high schools, right, or, or send people out to actually do any personal work with them. You know, what did you find? You know, is there a solution out there that we can, you know, do on the cheap? Uh, not on the cheap, I don't think. <laughs> so, so the the uh, intervention that you're talking about is was targeted specifically not at students like Ori and Alicia and Taslim, mm-hmm. but at um, super high achieving, low mm-hmm. income students. Uh, and this was an experiment done by two economists, Carolyn Hoxby and Sarah Turner, um, several years ago, where they uh, sent these information packets to students who were selected based on their income, or at least their, the income of their neighborhood, and their test scores from the College Board or from ACT, Inc. Uh, and there was, early on, some indications that th- these these information packets saying you can go to a more selective institution than you might be in thinking about, and if you go, you might get good financial aid, uh, that those made a difference. Mm-hmm. When that experiment was replicated by the College Board over the course of five years, they found very, uh, they found negligible um, uh, impact. And so the, the problem with the way that replication was done is that it didn't really give us a chance to figure out why, like to figure mm-hmm. out what is going on. And like, part, one of the things that's so puzzling about that experiment is that information should make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it is true that these are, you know, the, again, these are not, not low, low, low or even average achieving students. These are high achieving students. And so the, the, the fact that so many of them are continuing to uh, go to institutions that, that are less selective than some where they could um, have more resources is mm-hmm. still puzzling. But that, that experiment hasn't really answered what's missing. Yeah. As I read that, and I have to admit, I got more knowledge about the science in the field from your book than I've gotten from the peer-reviewed publications in that regard, you know, I had to ask myself, is it, does it have something to do with what you describe as, as a change in the motivation? So you said today when students come to college, they're motivated less by hope and more by fear. Mm-hmm. You know, are there other things that are trumping sort of the information, right, that are, that are going on in their families and their communities that might keep them, well, yes, I know that I could go to this school and the price would be lower. Right. But that's not real for my life. I mean, do you think that is a possibility? I do think it's a possibility. And again, you know, because yeah. of the way that, that data has been not analyzed, yeah. uh, we don't know a lot about, about yeah. what's going on. But, you know, one of the things that, that often gets forgotten about that, that early experiment is that most of the students who were found to be um, following uh, what the economists called uh, an income-typical path, mm-hmm. so rather than go to the sort of super exclusive uh, institutions that their test scores might uh, allow them to attend, they were going to local community colleges mm-hmm. or uh, non-selective institutions, public institutions, um, that most of those students were white. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, a disproportionate number were white and rural. And, and so a lot of my reporting was in this um, uh, very white, very rural part of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think certainly there's a lot that's going on in those communities that has to do with family and culture Mm -hmm. 
um, and history and even politics mm -hmm. uh, that I think affects the decisions that mm -hmm. those students are making. Um, I mean, this is sort of a broad generalization, and I can't support it with data, but, but definitely it struck me being in... Um, urban communities, mm -hmm. low-income communities uh, with a lot of black and Latino mm -hmm. parents uh, who had not gone to college, did not have a lot of resources, did not have a lot of knowledge, there still was the sense that, like, you, our kids should go to college, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that going to a highly selective college was a good thing, even if they didn't really know, have much information mm -hmm. in order to help their students. In these rural white communities that I visited, it was the opposite. You know, their, yeah. their families uh, were much more opposed to them going to highly selective institutions, even to going away, going out of state, going out of the, you know, the county. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that affected a lot of the students mm -hmm. who either felt constrained by it or just had internalized it mm -hmm. themselves. And I think that, you know, we, we, we have a habit in this, uh, in this country of thinking of low-income students as uh, students of color. Um, and there is a whole phenomenon going on about uh, white rural students, especially in red states, mm -hmm. um, who are uh, just not interested in going to instance, in, yeah. uh, institutions of, of selective higher education. I think that's right. And I, I did have to say, I'm going to say this gently, People who are not economists have written a lot about why that is. And so I kept right. on thinking, you know, so if we turn to Maria Kafalis's work, who's written about a great book called Hollowing Out the Middle, mm -hmm. she writes about the, the feeling of threat that a rural community will feel about their best and brightest leaving. Mm -hmm. And what does that actually do when they don't think they're coming back? Mm -hmm. You know, and similarly, um, Kathy Kramer wrote a book called The Politics of Resentment about Wisconsin's, uh, you know, situation. And I couldn't help when I lived there notice that the rural communities of Wisconsin viewed UW-Madison with a great deal of suspicion, mm. thinking you want to take our kids away, right? And you're not going to send them back home to the farm. Once they're gone, they're gone. And so I, I, I tend to think, you know, part of it is we are going to have to broaden sort of our, um, our different theories of action here, right? Um, but part of it is attending to a complicated set of political and economic uh, dynamics. Yeah, and what I would say yeah. about that is you're right. There right. are these complicated political and economic dynamics, yeah. but it also comes down to like conversations around a family of dining room table. Of course. And, and then it comes yeah. down to just the complicated emotions of, of yep. fathers and mothers and daughters and sons and uncles and grandparents. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's like hard to think about in terms of public yeah. policy. Like, what is the right policy? Is the right policy to get more of those high achieving students out of those communities? Or not, um, and and I feel like that's where uh, I, I think we have trouble. I mean, I th mm -hmm. I, you're absolutely right. There's been yeah. great scholarship in that area, but I think yeah. we have trouble thinking about. I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's at the dynamic of so much of our politics today. Yeah. What's going on in those communities? I think we have trouble thinking um, uh, rationally and calmly mm -hmm. about about those issues, and so we have trouble thinking about solutions yeah. in, in any kind of. I think we have trouble seeing way. all the options too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are 18 counties in in Pennsylvania, not the. Philadelphia's that we talk about that don't have a single college in those counties. Wow. There isn't one. So, you know, we're talking all about online college, but there also isn't broadband access. Right, right, right. What would happen if there was a nearby four-year or two-year college that was empowered to grant bachelor's degrees? Mm -hmm. Might we be able to increase educational attainment without asking people to leave? Mm -hmm. Or is it that people need to leave because that's sort of, you know, what Kiki could do when she went off mm -hmm. in the world could never be achieved? You know, do we believe that it's so special right. um, that, 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 you know, the talent really must go away in order to be fully recognized? Uh, yeah, and I that, kept I wrestling. Mean, it's a really interesting point, and, and, and that's some data that I didn't know, but it's really valuable. And, and 
but to me, the, then the complicated sort of political point is why are these why are the voters in these states uh, defunding their public higher uh-huh. education system? And th- so this was the question I kept asking yeah. about the community college where yeah. Ori was going to school in Western North Carolina. I mean, it would seem to be a great investment for his community mm-hmm. to fully fund that community college mm-hmm. so that people like him could stay, get a good job, uh, get a good get good training, and mm-hmm. get a better job than he could get without that. Um, and I think that's true in rural Pennsylvania as mm-hmm. well, but a lot of these state governments are exactly the ones that are cutting their funding on uh, public higher education the most. And so it, it does feel like, um, right, like having that local college could be a solution to that mm-hmm. problem, could be a solution to the they-have-to-go-away problem. Um, and I, and I, so the politics of it, I think, are, are make it make it. It does feel like a paradox. It does feel. Like it, a paradox. it definitely, it definitely fun. feels like a paradox. Although, you know, I can imagine, you know, the ones doing the cutting are the actual legislators. Now, yeah. certainly, there are people behind them, but they often have a lot of ire about the four-year schools, right? Yeah. And the two-year schools get lost in that conversation. They also don't have nearly the same kind of money mm-hmm. to pay for the advocates, right? To pay for the lobbyists and all of that. But true, and it's certainly that that would make another great book. What has happened? Right. But I think, but I think, <laughs> that, but I think it is the. I mean. Yeah. That maybe I'm overgeneralizing yeah. it, but I think, but I think it is the case that it's in those rural it communities that, that yeah. people and that people yeah. are most likely to vote for legislatures that are going to cut that money. It's, so. It is true. It is true. So um, I, I wanted to ask a little bit. You, this is not your first book, true. so I wanted to ask a little bit about. You know, I, as I noted, you're you're very pointed in your critique and, and of many um, sort of sacred cows in this book, um, which I appreciated. Um, you know, your 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 other book, How Children Succeed is a very different book, at least in my view. Um, and, and it seemed to focus, you know, it focuses on grit. Um, this one seems to focus far more on systemic problems mm-hmm. than sort of, you know, the grit that a stu- child does or does not possess. Mm-hmm. Is that an evolution in your thinking? Am I reading that the wrong way? Um, I think it is an evolution in my thinking. I mean, right. I, I feel like How Children Succeed to Me was a book about a few different things. So the okay. the theme of that book for me was was non-cognitive skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I looked at that at, at that from a few different ways, mm-hmm. um, from the point of view of economists who were studying it, especially James Heckman at the University of Chicago, um, from the point of view of educators who were calling it character strength and trying mm-hmm. to teach it. Um, but the, uh, the research that I found most important in that book was the, the sort of medical, biological, mm-hmm. developmental research about how growing up in stressful and traumatic environments uh, can have a long-term effect on mm-hmm. young people and how good investments in early childhood programs can counteract those negative environments. So in, in that way, I feel like there I, I was trying to look at sort of a structural uh, approach to what was happening in those communities. But I think I was looking at it, and maybe this is, has something to do with looking at young children. Mm-hmm. I was looking at it through the, through the lens of individual children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think I was also looking at interventions... Um, the interventions that I was most drawn to were ones that intervened with specific children, right? Like, what can we do in a school, mm-hmm. in a pre-K, in a home that's going to mm-hmm. change the situation around a child? Mm-hmm. And I think when I started working on this book, on the years that matter most, I, I, I thought that I might follow that same model, that okay. I would find inter- specific interventions that worked with specific students mm-hmm. and give them this intervention or that intervention or this support or that support and really change things in their lives. And I did find some, you know, like a Rupe College, I yep. think, um, is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. But I was really struck the more that I reported how much um, in higher education the the obstacles were so systemic and the problems mm-hmm. were so systemic. 
So probably that's something of an evolution in mm-hmm. my own thinking, mm-hmm. and I think it's partly uh, a difference in the system that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. So um, in the final chapter of the book, and this is absolutely one of my favorites because you, you turn to recipients of the original GI Bill, and one of the reasons that I'm just enamored with this is my grandfather is one of those. Um, and at 92 years old, he still speaks with me oh, about the importance of that legislation um, in fact, when people ask me why I do what I do, I actually point to that because he, he talked about the transformative power um, of that bill. And he references now, because I taught him about it, Suzanne Mettler's uh, own research, right, on, on how that really paid off. Um, tell me a little about what you learned from getting to speak to those folks who, you know, I, I'm so glad that you captured because we're going to lose them and they yeah. teach us a lot. Yeah, so I talked to I talked to a, a few different um veterans of World War II who mm-hmm. went to school in the GI Bill mm-hmm. ended up just writing about one, this mm-hmm. uh, man named Patrick Fay, who lives in Connecticut, uh, who had grown up in Massachusetts, the son of uh, an immigrant from Ireland, the son of a factory worker, went to uh, fight in World War II and then came back, uh, heard about the GI Bill and went to Northeastern um, and thrived. And it yeah. changed his life, it changed his family's life, um, and in many ways it changed the life of a lot of people in the country mm-hmm. during that era. Um, what struck me reading the the research that surrounded it is that I, I hadn't known the history of mm-hmm. how the GI Bill was written, and and I think we now look back on it as this thing that everyone agreed on and everyone was behind. <laughs> and uh, there were two ways that we weren't all behind it. First of all, when it was being written in in nineteen forty three and four, it was thought that no one would really take the government up on this mm-hmm. offer, right? Um, at the time, college was a very exclusive uh, institution that was just for rich kids. Mm-hmm. Um, only about 10% of students, uh, high school graduates, would go to college. Um, and these were, you know, the GIs were sons of farmers, daughters of factory workers. The idea that they would want to go to college seemed crazy. Um, and yet they did in huge numbers. Um, but And then there was also this thought right before the end of World War II that if they all did show up on, on college campuses, that it would be a disaster. The president of the University of Chicago talked about uh, educational hobo jungles that would break out <laughs> if all of these uneducated uh, working-class kids showed up on college campuses. And then they did. They, they, you know, In a couple of years, the student population, the undergraduate population of uh, American colleges doubled. Um, and but they also succeeded. They they mm-hmm. turned out to be great students, and so that that to me is so um, that's sort of the most instructive uh, mm-hmm. part of the story for me because I think we're in another moment of doubting that mm-hmm. there are that that we could expand higher education. That there are students who seem un- like unlikely to mm-hmm. succeed in college based on our um, uh, preconceived notions of what a, what a successful college student looks like. And uh, and so we don't think that we need to support those students with, mm-hmm. with a public investment. And what the GI Bill showed, I think, is that when uh, when this country decides to invest in those unlikely college students in a real robust way, mm-hmm. they succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's lots of, in, of, of individual, you know, anecdotal, um, um, place-by-place uh, evidence now that when we invest in, an, in, in any given institution in those unlikely college students, they do succeed, mm-hmm. uh, but for the nation as a whole, we have given up on that idea of, yeah. of expansion. Yeah. Well, and you also note that we expanded high school, right? Uh, so talk about this a lot. You know, I'm always amazed that people think that we just cannot 
expand education, yet we could never afford to. And I've argued you couldn't afford not to. I mean, what if we hadn't expanded high school? Right. You know, what, what is your take on, what do you think would have happened to us? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we would not have, you know, dominated the 20th century the way that we did. <laughs> so this was another period that I hadn't known about yeah. until working on this book, the yeah. high school movement yeah. of the early 20th century, uh, where between 1910 and 1940, um, the United States drastically expanded the n- number of high schools, and um, the percentage of students graduating from high school went from mm-hmm. about 10% to about 50% in 30 years. And what was so striking to me about that was was that it was mostly just this like, it, it sort of makes sense, but in a way that seems odd now in retrospect, because we have so much trouble doing this. Communities just looked at these signs from the economy, and they weren't economists. They were just, like, watching what the employers in their town needed, mm-hmm. and they were noticing that technology was changing in offices, in, on farms, in factories, and that in order to get the good the, the jobs that they needed, their, their young people uh, needed more than a sixth or an eighth grade education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had the very sensible reaction of, okay, let's get him this education, and let's do it collectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's build free public high schools in pretty much every community in the United States and uh, spend our tax money on sending everyone from the community to school there, whether they're our kids or someone else's mm-hmm. kids. And and that sort of collective notion was... Um, it just made sense, I think, to mm-hmm. people. And, and now we're at a similar mo- notion, right? So this was 100 years ago that we thought, yeah, 12th grade is probably what you need in order to deal with the technology mm-hmm. of 1920. Uh, and now we have, you know, technology that's 100 years advanced, and we are still debating about whether a 12th grade education is enough. Yeah. It's obviously not enough. And all of the signs from the economy and the labor market are that it's not enough. But now, unlike our pre- predecessors who were able to respond to that basic, those basic economic signs by saying, okay, let's educate our young people, uh, we are fighting about it and turning it into questions of identity and snobbery and um, uh, politics and partisanship mm-hmm. uh, when clearly there's just a sign that we, our young people, need, need our support, need our help, need more education, need more credentials, need more skills in order to survive in the current economy. Um, a century ago, we heard those signs and responded in a, both a rational and a collective fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're hearing it and responding responding in an irrational and um, uh, selfish fashion. Mm -hmm. What do you think the next election, we have a big election next year, I mean, what do you think that means for inequality in higher ed and the opportunities? It's a great question, and it's really hard to tell. I mean, I I, I think it is striking that Mm -hmm. some of the Democratic campaigns are talking about radical, fairly radical ideas about changing uh, public higher education. Personally, I don't think that the specific uh, proposals that some of those candidates have made are quite baked yet, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I think I think sure. I think they they tend toward they tend towards sort of a consumer mentality mm-hmm. that let's just sort of save costs or mm-hmm. eliminate debt. Whereas, really, you know, on, by contrast, what the GI Bill did was mm-hmm. say let's invest in mm-hmm. our students. Let's let's um, well, two things. One is let's invest more in sure. our institutions, but the other was. Let's level the playing field, right? Mm-hmm. Let's make let's invest in students who aren't currently going to college, rather than the ones who have already completed college. So my hope is that mm-hmm. progressive uh, candidates would understand that those two principles are actually the ones that would make most sense uh, mm-hmm. from a democratic point of view. If you wanted to mm-hmm. uh, create a better, fairer, bigger um, public higher education system, but the fact that we're having that conversation, or at least some candidates are having that conversation, seems like a really promising first sign.
Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you waded into this territory with this book. Well, thank you. <laughs>